Welcome to Principle of Hospitality. Now that's right, we have changed our name to Principle of Hospitality, formerly the Open Pantry podcast that you know and love. I've teamed up with my best mate, Sash Fernando from Principle Design here in Melbourne to create some of the best hospitality content that is going to come out of this country. We are Melbourne thinking with an international vision. We want to tell you the best hospitality stories moving forward to improve your business or give you insights into different things which are happening from around the world and obviously here in Australia. I know you're going to absolutely love it. We're going to do deeper conversations, even more content, new and different and innovative shows to provide you the best information to help you out in your hospitality journey uh, as always, we want your feedback and I'm going to make sure that you can give it to us so we can evolve this content to be the best ever. Let's get into today's show. I think you're really going to love it. Welcome to another great podcast. It's so fantastic to have you listening along. The Big Easy Group is one of the premier hospitality groups, South Australia, currently owning four of the best venues in Adelaide and growing strongly. Today, I'm lucky enough to talk with one of the co-founders, Oliver Brown, about how they have been able to grow these amazing venues in this fabulous city, which is my hometown. Oliver, thanks for being on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, just fantastic to be here, like uh, in the Stag Hotel, where you know I have spent many a night um in my 20s and just loved this particular venue but like i've been so excited with how you guys got started um a couple of years ago and seeing like the media excitement about your brand and, and how it's growing like how did you guys actually get started out in the industry yeah absolutely so i guess our first first serious venue was was nola mm-hmm. um I myself actually studied oenology viticulture at Adelaide Uni. Yeah, right. Um, so sort of had a, a love and affinity for wine and drinks. And through uni, I worked in bars and venues. Yeah. Um, at the end of uni, I um, sort of started off and opened up a little pop-up bar during Fringe. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole idea was I, I kind of thought I loved wine. I loved the idea of wine, but I didn't love how people talked about wine or yeah. kind of like all the wank around wine just wasn't wasn't really me. So I wanted to kind of take a bit of inspiration from Italy and do a venue that was all about good times and good wines and, and the company you're with rather than, you know, the bouquet of what's in your glass. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we started up Red Trousers with a, with a mate of mine, Eddie, and, yeah, for four months we ran this kind of, kind of little pop-up, pop-up wine bar and I think it consisted us, you know, of us mostly drinking grappa and, yep. and PX and having friends in the venue. There wasn't too many... Too many people we didn't know. Every time someone walked in, I didn't know them. I'd be like, what are, Who you, are, you? What are you doing here? Like, Grappa? <laughs> that's, that's pretty much how we started. And I met yeah, these right. three other boys who are all aerospace engineers. Um, so pretty much exactly what I did as well. Mm-hmm. Um, wine and aerospace, a lot of similarities. Not so many similarities. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we had this kind of love for love for beer and craft beer at the time. Yeah. Um, and then we came up with the, the concept and idea for NOLA. Yep. So in the end of 2015, the four of us opened NOLA. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, it kind of snowballed and more, more venues opened and continued. So one of the other founders, Josh and I, mm-hmm. um, he left his job in, in oil and gas and came back and joined what we like to call the family business. So... <laughs> He came back and joined and was, you know, working at NOLA, 
with me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as you know, you've been in hospitality a long time. As you know, you're kind of doing glasses one day in, mm-hmm. in the kitchen the next, and trying to you know write out write out formal formal contracts and accounting with the rest of your time. So it's really yeah, exactly. a lot of hats. So from there we expanded and um, won a contract to operate a large fringe venue, mm-hmm. um, the Fringe Club, so the Artist Bar, and that was in start of 2018. At the same time, we were opening our second venue, Anchovy Bandit, um, with one of the bartenders from NOLA. So, yes, amazing venue. Yeah, a little pizza, a little pizza cocktail bar, which at the start was, was such a challenge going into our second venue and, you know, we're having some troubles with products and yeah right like i don't know if you know much about pizza but the flour makes a huge difference and we 100%. built this recipe on this flour then got caught up in customs <laughs> so we had to use a different flour <laughs> and then the ferment was different and we just couldn't get our product right for the first first six months so it was wow. such a such a challenge and yeah. at the same time we're running a thousand person person venue in the biggest month um, of trade in the city so it was really full-on period mm-hmm. um then we eventually kind of found our feet there and Moved on to, yeah, take over this place in the end of 2018. So the yep. Stag Hotel had gone into administration and yep. we kind of stepped over and relaunched it as the Stag Public House. Yep. Um, and we had a different restaurant on the side, Charlix, which mm-hmm. um, just didn't work. Yep. Just, yeah, didn't work. So we closed that after about four or five months. Mm-hmm. Um, Join and, and that kind of stuff. Was it was it always going to be Ann Pizza or like how did you, how did you look at, the industry as a whole and decide that that was going to be the one that you um that you wanted to join was it was it that conversation a couple of years beforehand with michael that really spurred that decision it was certainly what what sort of lit the flame mm. what i would say you know what ultimately takes it to a full-blown fire is when you open up the hood and you check you do mm. your diligence on a potential partnership and you say like is this really what it says it is yes and you know in my case it was really important to make sure that not that the, not just the brand and the leader made sense, but that the bones and the structure of the business were actually set up to scale. Yes. And I think, you know, one of the things that's amazing about um, the fast casual industry, broadly speaking, is, is actually like how little innovation is present there. Like so much of that industry is essentially just people taking a QSR concept and adding the ability for you to watch your food being made in front of you. Yes. But effectively, the labor pool, the branding, the product offering is essentially just quick service. Yeah. Or a full service restaurant basically chipping away at hospitality and giving you like hospitality light, but the same product mix. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of people saw in the States, a lot of people saw Chipotle yep. in the late 90s, early 2000s, even into the late 2000s and the run up that they had. Mm. And I think they mistakenly identified the service model there as the differentiator. Yeah. And like the service model had been there forever. I mean, like Subway, you can watch your sandwich made in front of you. <laughs> yes. The service model does not make a great brand and it certainly doesn't make a compelling job offering for people. Mm-hmm. It's just a different way of not having a die wall in the middle of your kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I think when I looked at Hand Pizza, it was it was actually special. Like it was a special brand. It was creatively led and trying to stay fresh and keep things interesting and not stamp out 30,000 units that looked exactly the same. Mm. It was a brand that was not saying, how do I hold labor costs down, but rather how do I make the P and L work with investments into my people? And, you know, it wasn't saying how do I cut costs in terms of food quality? It was like, which things can we do that will improve food quality and predictability? And I think Mm. 
you know, in the restaurant industry, a lot of managers that do well do well because there are very predictable KPIs and standards for them to follow. Yes. And there's not a lot of variation. And like mm. when you do that, you can turn somebody's attention and gaze from having to be, you know, a detective to getting to be a coach. Mm-hmm. And as an HR leader, as a human capital leader by trade, when those things line up, you see a big opportunity to say this thing can be not just hundreds, but thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of units someday. Yes. And when you think about the fact that the hospitality industry in the States, at least, is the second largest private employer in the country, mm. that is impact. You look yes. at impact, like how many lives can you change if 10% of America's workforce has their paradigm changed for the better? And yeah. for me, that was the value proposition. And that's why I came. Was it was it a bit of an awakening moment when you came into the brand and you really saw underneath the hood and you understood what Michael and the team were sort of had created and, and were really starting to develop? Like because everything you've just spoken about is very different to how my career started out in the industry, you know, over twenty years ago now. Like um, we would care about our people, but we wouldn't deeply care about our people because we didn't want to get too connected and and tech was obviously starting to form, but it was way too expensive and that kind of stuff. And, and you know, you would as a brand, you would never talk about, you know, um, politics or you never talk about, you know, um, other other things in moral standing or social society. Like, was that was that a bit of an awakening when you came into the brand, even though you sort of knew what you were, uh, what you were signing up for when you came in? I think, you know, what I found when I got here mm. was, you know, very good intentions mm-hmm. and great bones. But, you know, what Michael, I think, was looking for and what, I, what I'm what i hopefully doing with the team after the last three years is providing the structure to scale something that's intimate. Yes. You know, I think a, a lot of times as brands grow, they move from that intimacy of single unit or small chain operations where there's that sense of family, you know, franchisees. Um, you know, like I remember talking to a Hungry Jack's franchisee when I was mm. at Burger King back in the day. And like, you know, this idea of like small groups of people that are like up in each other's business and know their life is a very yeah. different paradigm than like large national chains that span countries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, the bones were there, but the structure wasn't. And I think the key and the challenge and the nuance is how do you take what you know to be true about scaling brands in terms of the necessary standard operating procedures, the necessary mm-hmm. guardrails, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then how do you allow for people to be the best version of themselves and not have to conform? Yeah. And, you know, within Ant Pizza, it's kind of the fundamental value proposition here is that you can be who you are because the procedures are architected in such a way where it's less about your technical competency mm. and more about your personality. And I think that's gold. Like when a restaurant can Absolutely. find – a mm. model where you can hire just about anybody yes. as long as their judgment is good. Yes. And then you can talk about things that you can't talk about otherwise, right? You could talk mm. about political issues. You can talk about so, issues of social justice because you're now on the same side of the table. You're yes. working together. You're able to talk about that collectively. And I think one thing that a lot of brand leaders uh, make mistakenly do is they, is they try to keep too much distance between themselves and their people. Mm-hmm. They think somehow that it's possible to keep work life and home life separate. Yeah. And I think if there's nothing else that we've learned over the last 10 months, you know, across the world during this pandemic, They're together. it's that, <laughs> yeah, those lines are inherently blurred. Yes. And like one of the coaches I had early on in my career was very uh, astute. You know, he, he helped me really understand that, 
um, your head and your heart are like they're inside you. Yeah. Like you're not going to be able to separate them or leave them behind. And this idea that somehow you could be financially struggling outside of work yes. or experiencing homelessness outside of work mm. or hungry outside of work and somehow partition that off in your psyche when you mm. come to work at a service job and like serve guests and not have that impact you, that's preposterous. I mean, like there's, that's, that's the dumbest thing ever. And like management theory is kind of like rooted in this idea that if you're a leader, you got to separate work and home and mm-hmm. like to chip away at the humanity of that is to really undercut what's possible in the industry. And so for me, you know, as I lead the team day in and day out, I try to reframe a lot of those paradigms and questions instead mm-hmm. of saying, how do I not do this? Or how do I save on labor? Mm-hmm. You flip the question and say, how do I invest and deliver the same amount of profitability? Like, it's a lot of it is in framing and a lot of it is in the humanity of understanding that people just can't leave who they are outside of work, outside of work. It's just not possible. So leaning into that and creating a space where there's trust yes. is, is far preferred for building a long-term sustainable uh, product. Yeah. Without a doubt. I think safety and making, making sure that your team feels safe in order to have a conversation with you that sometimes is hard and hopefully a lot of the time is celebratory is, is really, really critically important. So um, I can't agree with you more. Um, I know a lot of brands, Andy, during this time have had some downtime um, and that has allowed them to think about their brands in, in probably different ways and, and maybe for the first time because they're usually just going gung-ho and, and not thinking about the end goal. When when you came into Ann Pizza and you're saying about the bare bones of the brand and, and your ability on top of that, was there a couple of things that you sort of did within the first 12 months um, that were really important for your, from a team perspective in order to build the right culture um, and grow on the great culture that was already there before before you entered to so make sure that those bare bones had some, had some muscle and some meat on it? Because I think a lot of the people listening would actually learn a lot from that, um, that journey. Sure. Uh, you know, when I joined, I mean, the company wasn't in its infancy. Mm. Um, you know, it had just opened its 22nd location. Yep. And so, so there were some reps under the belt. Mm-hmm. I think what's different at that point is that, you know, much like, uh, you know, much like folks that, that advance in their own career from operating a single location to being given the keys to three or four, yes, it's a case of, of what got you there won't get you to the next spot. And mm-hmm. I think the best description I have is that the organization still had a ton of that, um, you know, can do kind of advertising agency scrum methodology, like everybody go to the problem. Mm. And that like, if you were watching it, it looks a little bit like third graders playing soccer instead of, you know, professionals playing soccer where people stay in their position and work the field differently. And, Mm -hmm. and I don't think that's, that's not really a judgment on the organization at that time. It's more like that's what most organizations look like when they're 15 to 20 units. There's still Mm. a lot of third grade soccer going on ball Mm -hmm. goes to the corner all 11 people on the field run to the corner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think when you start talking about the way that I should probably say football, not soccer in this case, right? But like, <laughs> soccer's the way, fun. <laughs> the, the, the way that the game is played changes as mm. you get older. And that's the same thing in, in scaling a restaurant concept. You start mm. to look for games that are much more infinite in their scale yes. than the ones that are like right in front of you. You know, mm. they're, when you're an entrepreneur and you start something from scratch, 
often urgency and importance are the same thing. Yes. Uh, over time, the separation between urgency and importance becomes very clear, and you start mm. to understand that the things that just because they are important does not mean they must be solved right now. It just means you must have an awareness of the fact that this is something that must be solved. And, you know, that's a muscle that needs to build. And so I think one of the things that the organization has really built over the last three years is a longer time horizon for evaluating the return on their time invested. Yeah. It went early on the return on invested capital, or in this case, human capital and time mm -hmm. has a much shorter payback schedule, right? Mm -hmm. You're an entrepreneur uh, there. You don't have sales on Wednesday. Like, you dang well better have sales on Thursday, otherwise you're screwed. Yes. Like you, their urgency and importance are the same thing. Otherwise, mm. you're not paying the bills. And as that happens over time, you start to set up systems, you start to set up guardrails, you start to establish what the standard deviation of performance and expectations are yes. in a way that allows you to be able to do that at scale across greater geographies and across different types of people. Mm. I want to talk a bit about um, a bit about COVID, if that's okay. Um, obviously, as you're, you know, sitting in in America and obviously in Washington at the moment, um, you, you're dealing with still a crisis that's happening in the US. How are you managing that as a communication standpoint to your team on a sort of daily and a weekly basis to making sure that um, your team are still feeling that safety with inside your organization and, and making sure that and Pizza is a happy place to to come and work still? Like I imagine that would be a big challenge. Yeah, I mean, certainly the hospitality industry in particular, and as we were talking before, mm. you know, lockdown in Melbourne, like, you know, during those first hundred days and how restrictive that is and how mm. how much that puts pressure on the hospitality industry and, and kills it in that yes. scenario. Yeah. In in the early days of the pandemic here, say March of 2020, mm. um, as a team, we made quick bold decisions about how to invest in our people to send the clear message to them that their safety, not just physical safety or physiological safety, but even emotional and financial safety was our top priority. Yes. On the, on the 13th of March, before many cities went into lockdown, um, we immediately gave everybody in the business at the shop level a dollar an hour raise. Uh, we immediately put into place a benefits program that got, gave them subsidized transportation with Lyft to and from their pizza shop. Wow. We immediately removed waiting periods on paid sick leave. Mm. We extended the definition to include care for their family or for their children, for those that ended up with kids at home on Zoom immediately overnight. Yeah. Um, and we extended benefits to folks who were exposed long before the CDC had even given guidance to companies about mm. how you responded if and when you might have had a positive case mm -hmm. outside of work or even at work. Yeah. And I think because we did that immediately, before Amazon, before Starbucks, um, you know, before Target, before these huge companies that had far more resources than we did, yeah. our workforce looked at us and said, huh. Like these guys clearly don't have a war chest of cash like Amazon does, yet they're yes. still doing the right thing. Mm. Um, we guaranteed everybody's employment for the first 30 days when almost every wow. hospitality company was furloughing everybody because yes. they're like, I don't know what's going on. We said, we got you. We yeah. don't know what's going to happen. The changes are coming so fast and so furious. And, you know, we got to the end of that 30 days 
And we extended almost all of those protections. And we ultimately ended up making the dollar an hour increase that we gave people permanent in June when a lot of other people pulled back on that and somehow mm. determined that in Ju June or July that everything was, no was fine. <laughs> as, if, as if it was fine. Yeah, here we, here we sit almost 12 months later. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, it was much more about our initial response and commitment than it was about things that we've had to do along the way. And I think mm. what that did is it set the tone for a lot of the decisions that we made along the way. You know, here in June and July, the country and the states faced a lot of reckoning around racial injustice. And, yeah. and we provided paid time off for people to protest. Mm. And like at the time, Amazing. you know, people are like, what are you doing? Like, mm. how are you taking sides on an issue? And back to the earlier conversation, like, you can't divorce who people are from what they do at work in terms of their emotional well-being. And so, I mean, we're looking at our family members and saying, how do we help support them? Well, they mm. want to be there. Like, this is an issue that matters. And, and if it's an issue that matters to the company, it matters to me as the leader because ultimately that affects how people show up and, and whether they feel safe. And so I think taking that step and extending paid time off for activism as a next step sort of put more emotional – you know, deposits into the bank account. Yeah. Come the fall, we closed all of our pizza shops on election day. Like election day in the United States was a disaster in terms of logistics, right? Yeah. You had a pandemic, you had disinformation, you had suppression mm. and like all these other brands giving people paid time off. Great. Love it. But the problem is, you know, with transportation disruption and suppression activities and everything else, like mm. two to three hours might not be enough time. Right? Yeah. Because, you know, the line could be four or five hours. And so we just closed the business proactively and told people, you don't have to worry about it. We'll pay you for the day. Whenever you can get out there and vote, whether it's early voting or on the day of, do it. Like, we want to make sure you can exercise your right. Mm. We turned our pizza shops into registration hubs. We encouraged people to be able to, to get other people active in voting. And I think all of those things are not they're not the kinds of things that most companies think about right you know you yeah. think about like do you have a foosball table like is there happy hour on thursday <laughs> and the reality is like that stuff is okay i mean it's fun like it's yeah. great i'm not going to knock having a foosball table or 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 keg, a keg of beer in the office but mm. um, in this moment in this crisis solving for those basic needs of people feeling safe in and out of work, people feeling like the company they work for has their back and is on the right side of history. Yeah. And, and feeling like their company is going to understand that without them being able to, and being willing to be on the front lines, risking their health and well being mm. during this, like we don't have a business. I don't have a job. And, yeah. you know, we would not be where we are without, several hundred hourly workers willing to put up with that, to put mm. up with disruptive bus schedules and Lyft drivers and, you know, guests who refuse to wear a mask or whatever. Like, it's just, I mean, it, there, it is hazard pay. And like, mm. you know, I think all of those deposits that we made were critical in building trust. And I think we can't stop. We have to continue to not take for granted the responsibility we have to represent the interests of the people who are representing ours. Yeah, for sure. Because that, that was going to be my next question. Like, is it is it now a challenge that um, that you'll always? I don't know how to frame this properly. You'll 
it's always going to be important for you guys to have a political message or, or be be you know um, um, come out the gate and have a have a conversation about certain issues that come up. Like, how do you decide as a brand now? Like what you've what you've talked about with Black Lives Matter and talking about obviously the election and 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 voting rights are really really obvious things. Do you do you now look at your value set? as Ann Peter and say, okay, well, these are the things that we talk about as a brand and these are things that are important because they're part of our value. Is that is that how you sort of go to market and have that conversation with your consumers and your team? Yeah, I mean, I think we've been, as a brand, born and raised here in D.C. Mm. Uh, D.C. Is a, is a city that is very different than a lot of other cities in the United States. I mean, there's a long history here at both as the capital of the United States, but also as a crossroads between the North and the South. Mm. And like, even between the areas around DC, there's very different uh, racial and socioeconomic groups uh, that make up the city. Yeah. And, you know, for that reason, the issues that tend to affect, affect this city tend to affect our people mm. and those then in turn become our responsibility to have yeah. a point of view on mm-hmm. i think you know there's a lot of talk in these days about sustainability right people yes. talk about um you know using sustainable and compostable product packaging mm-hmm. you know like forks and knives that are compostable but i think the most important resource that has to be sustainable for a restaurant is people yes and so much of the hospitality industry treats the human component of it as disposable yeah they they see high turnover they see young kids and they think well whatever like we'll just hire another one hence continuing to fight to suppress the average wage like yeah if you can't have low turnover, it's in your best interest to have low wages so mm. that at least it doesn't cost you money when you make a mistake. Mm-hmm. Our, our take is the opposite. Our take is like, wouldn't you have less if you actually paid people a wage that allowed them to focus on the work they were performing? Yes. And if you believe in that, then you kind of have to take it a step or a bridge further and say, shouldn't you advocate for the issues that are important to the people who work for you because it will allow them to be even more present when they are at work and they are stewards of your brand. Yes. And so, you know, instead of seeing it as a cost or instead of seeing it as taking a stance politically for the Mm. purpose of having to be on one side or another, Mm. it's really about being behind and supportive of your employees. Yes. And, and I think that there are a lot of businesses, especially a lot of um, globalized businesses here in the States that have uncovered even in the last two weeks, um, since yeah. the attempted insurrection on the U.S. Capitol, mm. how important it is to be behind their employees and those interests. Like, and companies are starting to really understand that, like, sitting on the sidelines is actually not okay. Like, yes, your your employees want to know that you will fight for issues that matter to them. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's important to caveat it with this. Occasionally, we get sort of pegged as being political. Um, but I, what I would say is we are activists. That's mm. different. Like mm-hmm. you can be an activist and not uh, not a pacifist when it comes to the issues that matter to your employees. Right and we will always champion issues that matter to our employees. They will probably typically be on one side of the political spectrum versus mm. the other, but mm-hmm. not always. Mm. And at the heart of who we are is the symbol of the ampersand, yes. which stands for unity. Mm. And unity to us is about inclusivity. It is about acceptance. It is about diverse viewpoints. Yes. But I think the important thing to to anchor in is you have to have truth, right? Like we 
we've suffered in the, in the States specifically for the last four years with a lot of decay of truth over mm-hmm. time and mm-hmm. kind of an obfuscation of what the facts are on anything. Yes. And, and that's, that's problematic. As long as you agree on the facts, it's okay to have a different perspective on how to solve it. But like, if poverty is an issue, then it's an issue. We yes. can have different perspectives about the best way to solve it, but we can't pretend like it doesn't exist. And mm-hmm. so I think and pizza sees its responsibility as acknowledging truth when we see it and championing a resolution of that truth on behalf of our staff. Yeah. And I just thank God you do like it. It's just such an important framework for brands as be, as, as we reflect on, you know, during this time is how food brands are so, so important to our community that, that, you know, food brands need to have a voice too. So I champion what you guys are doing. It's just fantastic to see. Um, Andy, a couple of questions before I let you go. Um, I'm really curious to know if you were surprised by anything that happened with your team during this time in a really positive way, because you're, you've got such a people focused led organization that has so many, I imagine fantastic moments every day for your guests and for your staff. Like, but did anything surprise you during, you know, um, 2020 that just really um, made you love the team even more? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to kind of narrow in on like, gosh, what would really stand out? I think Mm. one of the aspects of the business that pleasantly surprised me and that I just think is a testament to how incredible the team is. Mm -hmm. We opened more locations, more new locations in 2020 than we have in any year of the company's existence. (laughs) And most brands were not taking that path. Yes. Like everybody was hunkering down, Mm. trying to save, preserve cash. Mm -hmm. Like, why would you be spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars building more pizza shops when you don't know what the future is going to hold? And I think, uh, you know, it's one thing for for me, you know, to set that direction for my team and say, this is where we're going. Yeah. It's another entirely for all of them to not only embrace it, but to execute it really well. And so I think what made me exceptionally proud is that, you know, there was a period of time where between late, late September and mid November Mm -hmm. across an eight week stretch, we opened six new pizza shops in that eight week window. And like to open six new locations in eight weeks during a pandemic, social distancing, masks, the lack of all the things that most restaurateurs rely upon to drive business to new locations and grand openings. You know, yeah. like we couldn't sample, we couldn't invite big groups of people. We had to get creative. We had to really leverage our digital chops. Mm. I, I was just, I was blown away and just really, really proud of the team because that doesn't just happen by setting a clear direction that takes immense cross-functional support of one another mm. and a belief in what they're growing. Because many people could look at that and say, how the heck, why would you spend millions of dollars of precious cash during a pandemic to do that? Yes. And I think it just speaks to the confidence that, that I have in them and that they had in each other. Yeah. And it speaks to how, yeah, it speaks to how fantastic your, your team is. And, and you're right. Like everything we've talked about in this podcast is how amazing the team is and how human capital has got the brand to where it is and, and not um, just fantastic tech or fantastic branding. It's human capital at the end of the day. So a lot of people have been really successful and productive in working from home, yes. but I still think there's a reason that we go to work and that social interaction will, um, uh, will, will keep the cities, get the CBDs back up and running. But 
you know, that whole do I work from home one or two days a week thing will probably stick around, which will might inject a higher level of sales into the, you know, inner suburban and suburban retail strips, which we've yeah. seen over the last six months and might take away from the CBDs a little bit initially. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's that pullback in working population in the CBDs in the, in the short and medium term is probably netted off by, unfortunately, some hospitality businesses that have actually closed permanently in the CBD. Yeah. Yes. So to, to put that otherwise, there might be a 20% lower working population for the next couple of years, but we'll probably see 20% of the businesses permanently um, close. Mm. So from a from an operational sales point of view, from those um, hospitality concepts that stay open, I, I don't think there'll be too much of a of an impact, particularly once the vaccine's fully rolled out. Yeah. Do you, do you think with that, you know, you, you said, you know, people going back to some normality, even if, you know, maybe they work three days a week um, in the office rather than five. Um, do you think, especially for, you know, Flinders Lane in the CPD, you know, one of the best, one of the best restaurants um, in Melbourne for sure. Um, do you think that corporates around you are going to use that particular restaurant and restaurants like Fonda in order to actually bring their teams together on the times they actually do they are working in the office to actually give them a positive experience and make them want to come back into the office? It's just something I've been thinking so the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Can we use hospitality as a driver, you know? That's a great it's a great thought. I haven't actually thought about that, but I guess one one reason why some people do like going to work is just getting out of the house, getting out of their suburb where they're at. Maybe it's having that great quality coffee mm-hmm. at, at Tom Thumb or whatever their local cafe is or going out for a meal at a restaurant. That, um, so, yeah, I think I think entertainment and hospitality and get, getting together, people, people have proven that they can, a lot of professionals can work. If you're just working at your computer, you may as well be at home. Yes. One of the key reasons to come to work is that social aspect of it. Mm. So maybe you're right. I haven't I haven't given that too much thought. But um, if we can make sure that we're offering a you know an accessible and social experience for workplaces, and we're in and around them, maybe we can be a reason for them to to get their their people back in the office more than they more than they might. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious. I'm just curious if especially CBD venues are actually going to change. You know their traditional kind of. Um, lunch and dinner times, you know, normally a Thursday, Friday night or a Thursday, Friday lunch would be the most busiest in, you know, in venues in the CBD. Like does that now change to a Monday and Tuesday lunch on some weeks? Because that's when people are in the office, in the office yeah. part of their team, right? That's when they do their meetings on yep. Monday and Tuesday. I've just, yeah, it's just something coming to my head last Maybe time. Maybe you're right. So thought. It's a really, it's a really good thought. Hmm. My um my last question to you, Tim, is what are, what are you looking forward to the most for twenty twenty one, both in a personal uh, on a personal basis and also obviously for the brand? Um, I think we've got a real gratitude. We're really grateful that we survived COVID. Yes. So I think personally and for our business, we're all proud and relieved and grateful we got through. So we have a heightened sense of appreciation. Of our business and the fact we've all kept our jobs, yeah. And I think that's that's really taken our, I think, the culture and the spirit of our workplace to another level. And we've also noticed that our guests, customers, whilst they were deprived of a hospitality experience for four or five months because they were locked down, mm. it, it it 
help them appreciate and realise that they love getting out for a coffee or a cocktail or a burrito or a burger or whatever it might be. Yes. So we're seeing a uh, 